What do all religions and isms in our world have in common? What do all religions and isms in our world have in common? Then a follow-up question. What one item sets Christ apart from all the religions and isms of the world? I'm making an assumption that all religions and isms in the world are the same in one core area. But Christ is set apart from them in one core area. Another question, what do all religions and isms of the world offer? All, what do they offer? In contrast to that, what does Christ offer? As we think about Christmas, we want to look at the core of Christmas, which is Christ's birth, his life, his resurrection. We're tempted at Christmas in the world in which we live to focus on gifts, family get-togethers, time off from school or from work, extra church activities, shopping, and so on. In some respects, let's block that out. And just reflect on Christ. So back to my question. What do all the religions and isms of the world have in common? I'm not going to read over all of them, but we can mention Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, Islam, Charismatic, Hinduism, much of Christianity, Catholicism, Atheism, Naturalism, Evolution, Humanism, and so on. All of them have something in common, all. Whether they're pursuing God or trying to go away from God, the common feature in all of them is that they focus on doing, a dependency on self. So this week I was talking to someone that considers himself semi-religious, And I asked him about eternity. He said, well, I think I'll go upward. I said, why do you think you would go upward? Oh, I've lived a pretty good life. Been pretty nice to my neighbors. You go back a few years, I was talking to another individual and We're talking about a relationship with God. Why do you think you have a relationship with God? Well, because I'm really involved in my church. All the isms and religions of the world focus on doing. Every religion and ism in our world involves doing to be right with God or doing to be right with whatever they want to be right with. Thus, there's a dependency upon self. Now, as you think about that, what is true of all humans? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So if humans in the religions of the world and the isms of the world are depending upon themselves, how effective is that going to be? Romans chapter 3. I'll begin reading with verse 10. 
Chapters 1, 2, and 3 kind of go together, and when we get to chapter 3, 10 through 18, Paul is kind of drawing a conclusion. And he says in Romans 3, well, I'll start with verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Are we, that is, Jews any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I think the passage is pretty self-explanatory in describing what humans, what people apart from Christ are like. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the fact that they're dead and trespasses and sins. Therefore, humans continually fall short. They cannot establish a relationship with God. Humans don't factor in that they're dealing with a holy God. They don't factor in the fall of humans back in Genesis 3. They do not see themselves as dead. And dead people think they can do something to have acceptance before God. Every religion and ism in the world is focusing on what I can do. They're doing, continually doing, trying to measure up. That's true of all humans. All isms, all religions of the world. Let's think about Christ. As you think about Christ, you have to go back to Leviticus. We won't turn there. But you find in Leviticus that continual sacrifices were being made. Every day, sacrifices were made. If you go to John chapter 1, we find in John chapter 1, Jesus Or John, the Baptist, sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you go to John chapter 19 and verse 30. As Jesus is hung on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. And in John chapter 20 and verse 31, we find John there says that Jesus Christ is the one through whom there can be life. But when Jesus said it is finished, it's done. It's over. Nothing else to be done. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. As we think about Christ, Hebrews 1. I'll begin reading with verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, 
sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Notice in verse 3, the Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. When you see Christ, who do you see? You see God. He sustains all things. Why is our universe holding together? Because Christ sustains all things. He holds them together. After he provided purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why could he sit down? Because on the cross he said, it is finished. The Lamb of God was sacrificed. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 through 18. Since the children have flesh and blood, that is, humans have flesh and blood, he, Christ, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Christ became a human, took upon himself human form. He destroyed the enemy, Satan, and freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. After discussing Christ being a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he says, the point of what we are saying is this. We do not have a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the or we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by man. In Hebrews chapter 2, it talked about Christ setting down. Here we have a high priest in the heavenly tabernacle set up by the Lord, who has sat down. Indicative that his work is done. It's over. It's complete. There's no more doing. It's done. Stands in distinction to all the isms and religions of the world that continue to do. Now in a moment, we're going to read some from Hebrews 9 and 10. But as we read Hebrews, keep in mind that the tabernacle using our sanctuary as a picture of the tabernacle, 
If you came into the tabernacle and the doors here, you would come into the holy place. There was a curtain down the middle of it. Let that be the curtain here in the middle of our sanctuary. And then over here you had the holy of holies. Priests could minister in the holy place. The high priest would go into the holy of holies once a year. And tradition would have that they would tie a rope around the high priest's leg in case he was not right with God and he died while he was in the holy of holies, they could pull him out. But the high priest went in once a year to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. But there was a curtain, there was a veil. And the earthly tabernacle apparently has a replica in heaven, a heavenly tabernacle where Christ offered his blood. And keep the tabernacle in mind as we read Hebrews 9 and 10. And if Jeff and Zach want to come up here at this time. As we read Hebrews 9 and 10, keep in mind we have the holy place divided by a curtain and then the holy of holies. The high priest went into the holy of holies one time a year. But the daily sacrifices would be made in the outer quarter in the holy place. That was daily. There was a constant doing in the Old Testament. And as we read some scripture, look for how Christ stopped the doing. Zach is going to read Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle was set up in its first room where the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Again, he's describing the tabernacle. Holy place, holy of holies. And he describes some other things that are present in the tabernacle. Notice verses 6 through 10. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. I want you to notice just one thing in those verses. 
at the end of verse 9, we're not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So the constant doing. Verses 11 through 15. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death and so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Notice in verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all. And that was done in a more perfect tabernacle. That is not man-made. That would be in heaven. Once for all. Done. Verses 16 through 22. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet, wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary, then, for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of, tr of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Notice again in the scripture that we have a new covenant. And scripture again clearly says 
once for all. Christ was sacrificed once to take away sin. It's done. It's done. There can be no more doing if it's done. And if it's done, there can be no more doing. As Hebrews 10, 1 through 10 brings out. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Jeff. You find coming through over and over again in Hebrews 9 and 10, it's done. The veil in the temple, we know, tore. Sacrificials or sacrificial systems ceased. The first is set aside for sake of the second, and the second is Christ. Brought out so very, very clearly in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. So what became a reality in Christ's death and his resurrection? The answer is, it's done. The ultimate substitute paid the price. It's complete. If something is complete, you can't complete it any further. It's done. The result is that only through faith, dependency upon Christ, can there be a relationship with the Creator. See, I can't do anymore. No human can do any more to have a relationship with God. It's done. It's a matter of trusting a substitute, the one who died in our place. So I want to do a contrast between law, religions, and isms, and Christ. The law, there's daily sacrifice. Religion and isms, there's daily doing, daily working. For Christ, it's once for all. It's done. The law covered sin. Religious systems and isms, it's never enough. Christ, it's done. Through faith in Christ, there's eternal life. Under law, there's due. The religions and isms of the world are due. Christ is 
done. Under law, there was imperfection. The isms and religions of the world are imperfection. Christ, there's perfection. The law, there was a dependency on sacrifices. The religions and isms of the world, there's a dependency upon self. In Christ, there's a dependency upon Christ. Under law, there was a seeking to cover sin. The religions and isms of the world, there's a seeking to pay for sin. And in Christ, sin has been paid for. It's done. Paid for past, present, future. It's done. The law, there's a continual working. Religions and isms, it's working under Christ. It's grace. Grace in coming into a relationship with God and grace in living out that relationship with God. I can't anymore live the Christian life than I can establish a relationship with God. It's all of Christ. Now think about religions and isms in contrast to being in Christ. Religions and isms are due. In Christ, it's done. In religions and isms, they're seeking to measure up. In Christ, you're already measured up. Over and over again, I've talked to religious people, and what are you doing to think you're in a right relationship with God? Well, I'm trying. I hope I make it. I hope. I'm not certain. But in Christ, we're measured up in Christ. The religions and isms of the world, there's a duty. In Christ, there's a delight. Do I have to read my Bible? No. Do I have to go to church? No, because none of them will merit anything with God. But in Christ, he changes us. We want to relate to him. We want to interact with his word. I find it so intriguing in talking to religious people and those who follow the isms of the world. They're living a life of duty. For those in Christ, it's a life of delight. Religions and isms of the world, it's have to. What do you have to do? In Christ, it's a want to. It's a response. Big difference. The religions of the world and isms of the world, there's a trying. <clears throat> in Christ, there's a relying. In the religions of the world, there's an effort. In Christ... There's a resting. In the religions of the world, there's a hope to, or hope so. In Christ, there's a no so. In the religions of the world, there's self. In Christ, it's dependent on Christ. In the religions and isms of the world, it's earn. In Christ, it's receive. In the religions and isms of the world, it's try harder. In Christ, it is total dependency. The religions and isms of the world, it seek heaven or in Christ is pursuing a relationship with God, with Christ, and with the Holy Spirit.
My very simple question is, do you have a relationship with God through Christ? If not, why don't you trust him today? Christmas is about it being done. It's done. It's complete. There's nothing else to be done. It's an issue of faith in Christ for salvation and for living out our faith in Christ. With those thoughts in mind, let's sing together a hymn entitled, In Christ Alone Alone.